Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Heller. And welcome to the show today. We are here to talk about um, two dramatically different movies. Uh, we are here today to talk about uh, the 1996 sex movie, <laughs> Crash, and the 2003, I think a sex movie might have helped it, uh, The Cat in the Hat. <laughs> oh, God. Um. Corbin, where would you like to start? It's been so long that I forgot that your movie was Crash, especially since we talked about it in person like three days ago. And boy, I had to stop myself from asking questions so hard. I was thinking about the cat in the hat and I had like an upbeat attitude. And then I, you said Crash and it's like, oh, right. Fuck. Watch that movie. A a movie that neither of our significant others could stomach to finish. Mine couldn't even stomach to start it. Opening credits were too much. Hey, man, those synthy guitar scores, they are abrasive <laughs> to, to the untrained ear. Uh, Corbin, where would you like to start? Um, Whoville adjacent or, I think, Toronto? Uh, let's start with unnamed Canadian city. Okay, that brings us to... I'm going to... I'm going to say it's Vancouver because that it has a much more active film scene. And he was a producer. Does Vancouver have a bigger film scene than Toronto? Vancouver is very large. I know Vancouver is large. Toronto is large. Well, like not large city wise, but the film scene is quite large. Interesting. I, uh, I don't know much about Canada. I was talking to a friend the other day and she was talking about maybe going to Manitoba. And I said, where's that? And she said, I don't know. And I said, is it by Ottawa? And she goes, I don't know what that is. And so we both realized we didn't know, like we both knew a Canadian town, but not the other ones and couldn't geographically place either of them. So I know Vancouver is like by Washington. Yes, it is Northwest by Edmonton. It is on the water and too. Kind it's of by Calgary. Yeah. And I know Quebec is very east, is like the easternmost one besides the island and I think Nova Scotia. I believe Um, Toronto is directly above Buffalo. Yes. Uh, Ottawa, I think, is west of that. And then Ottawa is like Montreal is to the east of that, I believe. Buffalo, Montreal. I think Toronto and Montreal are very close. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think Quebec, or sorry, um, Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal are necessarily far from each other. I'm also not going to look at a map and check it out, because you know what? Fuck you, Canada. I got no fucking, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. I never have to drive between these cities. They don't matter to me. They're not real. Like Oklahoma. It doesn't exist. Anyway. Um. Okay, so. Crash. I'm so excited to talk about really both these movies for such wildly different reasons, but I'm very excited to talk about Crash. Um, Crash came out in 1996. It was directed by David Cronenberg. It was written by J.G. Ballard, who wrote the book, um, and then the adaptation by David Cronenberg. The film stars James Spader, Holly Hunter, and Elias Cotillas. Um, The film had an estimated budget of $9 million, 
and a worldwide gross of two point six seven million dollars. So not a not a big hit. Didn't uh, didn't really uh, resonate <laughs> in the public conscious, I guess. Um, the film did have a tagline. Um, the tagline was the most controversial film you will ever see, which um, fair. Corwin's dead silent, so I assume he forgot he muted himself. Um, the film has no major award nominations nor wins based on uh, what we typically go by, which is the Academy Awards. Uh, however, this film does have the distinguished um, accolade, probably the only movie we ever talked about, that was uh, won both an AVN Award... 1998's best alternative adult feature film and won a jury prize at con as well as being nominated for the palm door or you had cut out but i had just mentioned that this film has the uh the interesting designation or um a notoriety that it is probably the only film we will ever talk about that both won an award at con and won an award at the adult video news awards the avn awards <laughs> What? Yes, this was the 1998 winner for Best Alternative Adult Feature Film. And it was nominated for the Palme d'Or at Cannes, taking home the special jury prize. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to make a joke about that. How, how can you? <laughs> Holy shit. That is... that Those... <laughs> Okay. Yeah. What makes just <laughs> I, I'm so fascinated by this movie now. What makes also the the awarding of the special jury prize so interesting is that it is not the jury prize at Con, which is awarded every year. The special jury prize is only given at the request of the jury. So like they it is a literally a special prize that is, is not annual. And so Francis wow. Ford Coppola was the president of the jury that year, and he had given the award for, quote, originality, for daring, and for audacity. Um, And apparently many people on the board heavily objected to this um, and did not want to give it the award. But it oh, was so such he, a... He's... He was singular in the awarding of this award. I don't know if he was singular on it or if it was like the people because th this is kind of the thing with the movie. Like you're either going to find this to be you're not going to have a middling point of view on this. <laughs> you are Nobody either going watches to this because it was on. Right. And no one's going to walk away from it. Like so like how some people walk away from like Top Gun Maverick. where You're like, yeah, that was fine. <laughs> you know, like you're either going to be love it for what it is or be absolutely fucking repulsed by it. Those are kind of your only two options. And so I, I would assume that it was more of a split jury where it's like it ended up getting awarded because the majority of people on the jury probably were like, yeah, this deserves it. Whereas the people who didn't want to give it really didn't want to give it. So that's I just some additional background there. Very much hope that there is a documentary made on that decision at some point in time i i went to look up 
the most recent con uh d'Or nominees and just seeing another david cronenberg on there is just like god damn dude well and that's kind of the like we will talk about it because it is why i picked this movie and it is you know a big part of how his movies get made but like david cronenberg's name being on it he's such a renowned dude you know um we'll we'll we will get into it um so the actual plot of this film just to talk about a little bit it is about um after getting into a serious car accident a tv director discovers an underground subculture of scarred omnisexual car crash victims who use car accidents and the raw sexual energy they produce to try to rejuvenate his sex life with his wife um there's so much to talk about with this movie um but it was my pick so i guess i'll get started um i have not seen this movie prior to (laughs) to to us to picking it i did not know what it was about i am a fan of cronenberg though and this was this is a highly regarded cronenberg movie you know this is it's not a, a the big like commercial success that people would recognize from David Cronenberg like they would The Fly um, or uh, History of Violence, maybe um, Eastern Promises. Um, he doesn't really have a lot of big ones. He is kind of a niche guy. Like you've either you've either seen Videodrome or you haven't, you know, like you uh, you it's long live the new flesh or what the fuck are you saying? Um, <laughs> and I'm on board like. Because he is such a bizarre, um, like genre auteur in a, in a fascinating way, you know, it's like if David Lynch just fucked constantly. It's such a weird type of filmmaking that is obsessive over. I mean, obviously, he's known as like a the, the king of body horror, but but it's not just the horror aspect of it. It is so psychological. And it is so inquisitive in a really interesting way. You know, um, I was thinking while watching this a lot about um, the movie Solo, uh, Solo or the 120 Days of Solemn with Sodom, um, which is the Pierre Paolo Pasolini movie. And it's. Oh, man, it is um, like Pasolini was so curious about not so much the the, the same things in specifically with like the neuroticism of sex, but so much more or, or really bodies in general, but so much more about uh, mor- morality, you know, where, where we divine our beliefs from and what the limits and origins and meaning is of them. Because Pasolini didn't just make one of the, most difficult movies I've ever watched in Solo or the 120 Days of Sodom. He also made the Gospel According to St. Matthew, which is like given a big green check mark from the Vatican as one of the the most faithful adaptation of religious text ever done. Like it's it's an interesting dichotomy. And Cronenberg doesn't have quite the same polar opposite in terms of his filmmaking career, but this is absolutely like the farthest reaching of this type of exploration. I think he's, he's ever made at least from the films that I've seen of his, which is admittedly mostly just the big hits scanners rules. Um, 
And it is unrelenting in a way that is fascinating. And when it ended, the ending was so depraved, <laughs> but so satisfying because it reaches the conclusion you want it to in a really fucked up way. Like there is a level of understanding of motivation that the film has you un, you know learn and 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 live with that when the final sex scene happens you're basically rooting for it which is so interesting corwin tell me what you thought the word that really stuck out the most there was unrelenting yes. which is such an apt way to describe the sexual endeavors and visualizations of such for just two hours um it i will give it credit it does not shy away from its soul for a split second you are starting right there in the thick of it the second scene it cuts to is just the exact same fucking thing which, looking back on it, is such an unbelievable way to drive home the ride that you are now locked into for the next two hours of just, guess what? We're going to be brash. We're going to be bold. Opening scene, sexcapades. God, glad that's over, right? Nope. Here's another one. Buckle up, buckaroo. You're in for a ride. Um, and I, I agree with you. It, it is something you either see in just an extra dimension or just, man, Hey, proud of you for loving this, but this is just not my cup of tea, not my flavor. Um, and while I can appreciate the technical aspects of how this film was made, very much not my cup of tea. Very uncomfortable. Quinn couldn't get through the opening credits, which I think is an absolute silver lining because she definitely would not have enjoyed watching this movie with me. I would not have enjoyed sitting in the same room as each other watching this. Um, she caught the opening credits and the final scene. And I think that painted a beautiful picture by comparison. Um it's hard to really critique the actual narrative plot because it's perfect. Uh, yeah. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Some guys really like watching cars crash, getting close to death and fucking just anything and everything and everyone and everywhere fucking. So I was <sighs> trying to describe the plot of this movie to our friend Dan the other day. Um, because he hadn't seen it, and Dan and I love watching weird, fucked up movies and telling each other about them. Um, and I was trying. It, basically, it's about a movie who about a guy who gets into a car accident and finds a group of people who derive sexual pleasure from that. And it is a fascinating concept because, especially in the nineties, you know, in nineteen ninety six is really when a lot of like. Um, extreme sports stuff was happening and there was this understanding 
and growing consciousness around extreme as a means of achieving some heightened feeling, right? Like, you know, obviously like BMX shit had had been happening since I think it started something like, like the 80s. Uh, but we've got a, a lot more like high concept thrill seeking, like thrill seeking really started to become a thing. Um, and to that end, people seek it out for the natural high that it provides. And it only makes sense that it would also progress then to something that is sexual, right? Like it, the idea of autoerotic asphyxiation is not new. It's, I don't know when it started. I'm sure it's not present, you know, uh, uh, contemporary to like present times. I'm sure it, it spans back a long while because as long as there's been rope and the will to jack off, I'm sure some some freaks in nature put those two things together as soon as they could, the peanut butter and jelly of uh, sexual interplay. But it is, um, it is this interesting thing because it's also, I was reading a little bit about what inspired Cronenberg to make this movie and what inspired the writer of the book to write the book. And there was, there was a conversation about how the idea of dying in a car accident is a uniquely 20th century notion, especially the latter half of the 20th century, because prior to then there were no fucking cars. Like if you were to explain someone to, if you're to explain a car crash to somebody in 1850, you have to start explaining them what a car is. And then you have to ex- be able to explain the speeds at which cars could travel. And then you could get into what a car crash actually would involve. And even then, like, depends on how in the weeds you want to get on it. Cause like Holly Hunter wasn't, uh, her husband wasn't wearing a seatbelt, which was part of, you know, like it is a uniquely post 1940s, even I know cars existed prior to them, but even then, 1940s 1950s kind of um uh oh there's a word i'm looking for but i can't think of it phenomena um and so to take that in accordance with the david cronenberg natural like want to explore the human body and the ways in which it can get fucked up is really interesting to look at because it's not just depravity, like for the sake of it, it is very intentioned and everyone in the film takes it very seriously. And everyone in the film, uh, much of the cast also has like reservations about it, but are of such a either fragile or firm mindset about what they want that they allow themselves to buy in and, and, and get brought in by these groups, you know? I understand what you're saying. I very much at one point thought of the Creed Bratton quote from The Office. I've been a part of a lot of cults. You have more fun as a follower, but you make more money as a leader. And it's it's very much one of those like, yeah, you probably made a lot more money off leading a film production somewhere. But boy, when you're making, you know, those back alley erotica films, you know, driving by car crashes, you're having a lot more fun. Yeah, I mean. It's also interesting. 
that like Holly Hunter is in this movie. <laughs> yeah, very un Holly Hunter like as well, I saw going through basically all of his movies on IMDb and their top actors and actresses. A lot of surprising names. David Cronenberg gets talent. And it, that's what makes the Holly Hunter one such an interesting get because it is at the height of Holly Hunter's fame because this movie comes out two years after she wins her Oscar for the piano. Well, actually, it comes out two years after the piano came out. So really, it's probably like an like a year after um, she actually wins the Oscar. Like, this is a huge movie for her to to be in or it's a it's it's a she's a huge get for this movie and it really speaks to to david cronenberg because he had like if you were to count up the oscars of the people who's in his movie in his movies he's got a bunch of them people love working with this with this fucking guy in a way that i you don't usually see outside of people who have, you know, like big time mainstream success, you know, like we expect this from guys like uh, Steven Spielberg. People will drop stuff to sign on to a Spielberg picture because it's fucking Spielberg. Holly Hunter was pushing Cronenberg to put her in a movie, not the other way around. And this movie, like not like some, some polite, you know, much more low-key, uh, plain Jane film, this fucking movie. <laughs> like, by far his most controversial, daring, um, potentially yucky, depending on your sensibilities. It's, um, it's nuts. So nuts is also an apt word for this. I mean, it's also interesting because like how many sex scenes are there in this movie? Like, did you keep count? No, God, no. How could you? Right. Yeah. I can't even count that high. I, I, it's one of those things where it's like when the movie started on a sex scene, I was like, yeah, I mean, okay, it's a David Cronenberg film. I was expecting a sex scene. And then when the second one's so soon after, I was like, whoa, we're getting a lot of sex scenes. And then, then the third one comes like right behind that one. And I'm like, this is a lot of the movie. <laughs> like so much of this movie is just people fucking. Um, and none of it looks particularly pleasurable. Like that's the other weird thing about the the sex, especially at the beginning. The sex at the beginning is it's it's mm-hmm. not tender. Definitely aggressive. It's 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 like it's like compulsive disinterest. You know, like it seems like everyone there feels like they have to, but no one's necessarily like embroiled in joy. You know what I mean? This isn't lovemaking. It's fucking. It seems like people searching for something within the fucking. Like, it is a dissatisfying sexual experience, but one that everyone that is undergoing it feels like they have to be undertaking, which is interesting. Because, like, you know... 
James Spader and his wife, like they're 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 not into it really. Like she kind of gets more into it when she starts when they start talking about the other girl James Spader had fucked like earlier that day. <laughs> um, and I think she's talking about the guy that she fucked earlier in that day. Like it spices things up like a little bit, which is part of their whole thing is that there's the missing spark, which I mean, they're going to extremes to figure out. And then from there, like every additional layer of weirdness that the film piles on beyond that also serves to eventually make the sex seemingly more enjoyable for everybody involved. You know, like the 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 sex scene where James Spader is fucking his wife and his wife is talking about oh, the the um the cult leader guy whose name I fucking forget. Hold on. Uh Vaughn when when uh James Spader's wife is talking about Vaughn uh James Spader sucking Vaughn's dick I think like it like she was like describing gay sex between Spader and Vaughn to Spader while fucking and she was getting like super into it and then you know it every sex scene that has an additional crazy thing that happened prior to it helps light the fire of the sex scene that comes after it in such an odd and interesting way <laughs> like like by the time you get to the gay sex scene like where were you we got there and my first thought was just like i can't believe i didn't expect this like of course we're here I, I, it's absolutely silly of me not to think this was coming But it's one, a hundred percent. Like I should have seen that shit coming a mile away and it still took me by surprise. But it's also so fascinating because like it kind of encapsulates what the movie's trying to say, which is these are people obsessed with the physical experience of like a, like a being human. That's the whole movie. So the sexual orientation of these men basically doesn't fucking matter it doesn't matter that that neither one has has shown any semblance of homosexuality prior and it doesn't matter which one is you know taking the top or the bottom here what we have here is two dudes who are just enraptured by the physical experience of being a human being and that representation in this moment is sweet Kate lovin it's kind of amazing. Uh, I I don't know if I would personally go so far as to say amazing, um, but yeah, it's it's an exceptional accomplishment for what he was trying to obtain. Attain. I I want you to talk for no fewer than like 10 entire I minutes can't. about every feeling that you had while watching this movie. I'm I, so interested in how you experienced it. See, the problem is with that is I would have to be like, it's so locked down in the cat in the hats mystery box that I, <laughs> I can't, can't believe that's the next movie it. we have to talk about. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's just like so repressed in my memory. I would have to be actively watching this for those feelings to start rushing back to me. And I couldn't, I don't think I could sit through that again in order to achieve those 10 minutes of discussion. I it did would just be me. That. 
it would be so much cringing and just like, ah, oh, why? Ah, oh. no, nah, you know what? I take that back. The cringing was definitely uh, in the moment, just like, God, I can't believe I'm watching this. I can't believe this is just a 120 minute continuous circuit of just the red light district to the extreme. I think rewatching it, I would genuinely be able to kind of pick up on those undertones of actual human connection and soul searching and things like that. But the first punch in the face left me dazed for the, just the entirety of it. I mean, it is one of the things that makes David Cronenberg the freakish, ghoulish genius that he is which is that he has he has crafted an entire visual language around the sex scene that I don't think really exists with any other directors. Like, the sex scene in Top Gun Maverick, which I'm now just thinking about because I mentioned Top Gun Maverick earlier and now it's in my head, between Cruz and Jennifer Connelly is what kind of representative of, like, most sex scenes in especially like 80s and and uh, up until like we got into the neo noir femme fatale erotic thriller of the 90s like it's it's that's most of what the sex scenes used to be which is like here's people who love and love each other we, we've moved past the kiss we can now get into risque territory we're going to show them fucking and in top gun maverick it's a is is encapsulative of uh a, a lot of what you get which is like you know, it's very gauzy. It, it it's it's very it's it's montaged. You know, it's it's delicate, very soft. Um, whereas, and it's not informing you of much of anything. The only information to get is they are together now. They've achieved some oneness. They their their love has grown to a degree where this is happening. Whatever. Cronenberg is trying to inform about something trying to say something with every sex scene in his movies like the sex scenes in crimes of the future his most recent release which is one heck of a movie <laughs> of all the movies that came out last year it was one of them um it I, I it's a whole different episode it's a whole different episode uh but like there the, the sex scenes in that movie serve a purpose about you know, the, the whole film tells some type of tale of like, you know, the consequences of evolution, uh, micro and macro evolutionary development in the human species as we're heading towards certain environmental effects and how sex kind of changes with that. Likewise, in when you did The Fly, you know, there's sexual ramifications to Jeff Goldblum's metamorphosis that are meant to express how his character is changing and the physicality in which his character is changing, not just, um, you know, the, the the gross exterior shit, but also like his instincts as a human slash fly man. Um, and that's what this movie kind of does, too. But it is so aggressive with it, which is what I think makes it such a difficult watch because it's not polite. It's not a delicate handling of sex. And it is constant and it is a lot of times yucky <laughs> especially when there's all the close-up shots of like james spader's 
uh, leg in the, the big metal brace thing or Vaughn trying to force car accidents to happen so he can get off. Like it is fascinating. I'm not, I'm also not sure how soon I would want to rewatch this. I would, I, I was just thinking that like, man, this sounds like a really great thing to dive back into and really kind of come to terms with everything that's trying to be said. And boy, good luck to anyone who wants to, because that's just not me. You explaining that in such simple terms was enough of an explanation for me. And I could die without ever having to experience those myself. Yeah, it's and it's also one of the weird things like Solo is such a crazy movie. I'm assuming you've never seen it. No. You you you're not gonna like it, uh, but it's such a crazy movie because I I knew there was gonna be a lot of sexual violence in the film, and in a weird way it was kind of easy to take. It was unpleasant and rather rough, but I was kind of braced for it. Like I you know I had my guard up on it, but a lot of the other shit that that happens in that movie, which I will hold off on mentioning in case anybody wants to watch it. And uh, yeah, I mean, Pasolini is a great filmmaker. I mean, it's well done and it sucks to watch, but um, it's well made. Um, really fucking got to me because I wasn't expecting it. And it, it was the the perverseness of, you know, like the holistic perverseness of the film that led to it being such a such a downer of an experience. Um, and I was wondering if maybe now that I would have my guard up a little bit in watching this a second time, like now that I know kind of the beats maybe it would be easier to take but i'm just not sure and i don't necessarily feel the need to find out right now anyway mm-hmm. agreed i probably won't be seeing a cronenberg film for a decent clip unless you know movie night turns into just you strapping us to a chair in a basement like jordan peele's first film and just making me watch it um Get out. Thank you, Corwin. Your brain works sometimes. Um, but yeah, that that was an experience. Eastern Promises, I don't remember having like any really rough sex scenes, but you do get a pretty sick naked fight in a Turkish bath where Viggo Mortensen hangs dong. You, I really was about to go on a tangent about like it's not just like the sex, it's not you know nudity or or the actual you know porn that I'm watching. It's just more like the style that it's being presented. But then you said he hangs dong, and you just wrote me back in. Every time I think I'm out, they pulled me back. Pulled me back in. Uh, all right, let's let's talk about the cat. Um, before yes, we do that, what though, I've been most looking forward to all week. Let's talk about the cat in the hat. Uh, real, real quick before we get there, final ratings and reviews. I will start because it was my pick. Um, I'm hard pressed to say I loved this because that I think that implies a willingness to share, <laughs> and I really don't think I would. I would recommend this movie. <laughs> Only the people like I know are cool, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like are, I'd only recommend this to someone I know is also like a sick little freak that is going to be down. Um, 
I do really stand by the filmmaking of this, though. Like, I, if I was on that con jury, I'd be pushing for this to win Palm Tour. Like, this is, it's an insane movie in what is like one of the most daring and fascinating ways possible. And it does not shy away from anything, which is what makes David Cronenberg such a good filmmaker. And he cut his teeth in genre, and I know a lot of people will probably associate him more with genre work, but this is a straight drama film that when people Google crash movie, this should be the top result Um, (laughs) instead of the other one. Um, Straight up. I know it's so bad. It's so bad. It's so bad. I remember watching it in, I think, like my freshman year of college, not for college, just like around that time and being startled at how bad it was. Um, I'm really waffling between a four and a four and a half on this. <laughs> I'm going to give it a four and a half. Wow. I disagree. Um, but at the same time, You're going like, the full five then? Yeah, exactly. Like I've given, I have no qualms with giving out zeros or incredibly low scores to films. Done it that twice, I, I believe I have. Um, what was the second one? What was the more recent one? What was there? Was oh, a Elvis. More rec- oh, or okay. was it the other one? Or it wasn't Avatar. No, it was definitely Elvis. Um, I say definitely, like I'm more than fifty percent confident. But um, regardless, I know there's so many people out there, like you were saying, who will like really adore this. Uh, for their own reasons and it's hard to like give it like a one because of how much I disliked it <laughs> knowing that deep down under all of that you know shell is a very good and extremely well made film um, um, I think I'm giving it a two and a half just to completely cut it down the middle and take all responsibility off my shoulders for whether or not you enjoyed this film or what to expect of this film. I think it was blue velvet was the other zero you gave recently. I feel like I finished blue velvet though. Like I only I'm, give I'm zeros out that I don't, I can't physically finish. I'm going through and all the recent movies we've done up until this episode were the best picture movies, all the Oscars movies. So if it wasn't Elvis or blonde, it might've been blonde, but I, I think we gave blonde reviews. And I don't think they were good. Uh, the recent episodes that were not um, Oscars picks, Blue Velvet's the only one that looks like it could have been it, but I don't know. Uh, all right, let's. Uh, God, this transition is just killing me every time I have to say it. Let's talk about the cat and that. Oh my God, this fucking movie, this this cancer of a film. Um, the Cat and the Hat came out in two thousand three. It was directed by Bo Welch, written by Alec Berg, David Mandel, and Dr. Seuss gets a credit. The film stars Mike Myers, Spencer Breslin, and Dakota Dakota Fanning. The film had an estimated budget of $109 million and grossed worldwide $134 million. Like, domestically at 101, it did not make its money back. It kind of on paper did worldwide, but with marketing and, you know, NR, it absolutely did not. Um, just woof. 
Uh, the film's tagline is cats with hats only. Perfect. It's perfect. It's, it's so bad. Um, the film didn't win shit at awards. Um, just for a a mention of I, I I the Razzies I don't much care for generally speaking, but um just to give a sense of how poorly received this was at the time. In 2004, it was nominated for worst screenplay, worst excuse for an actual movie, worst director, worst screen couple between Mike Myers and either thing one or thing two, worst <laughs> supporting actress for Kelly Preston, worst supporting actor for Alec Baldwin, who I did not know was in this movie, uh, worst actor for Mike, Mike Myers, worst picture uh, in 2005, it won worst comedy of our first 25 years. And then in 2010, Mike Myers won worst actor of the decade uh, for this and the love guru. It was like <laughs> the fucking love guru. Holy shit. Um, that to that end, and I'll talk about it in a bit. I do kind of understand how this movie got made and, why the budget was so big, but we'll get there in a second. The film is about two <laughs> poor children have their lives turned upside down when a talking cat comes to visit them. Or when your movie it's the cat you it's the cat in the hat. The plot is in fact the children's book The Cat in the Hat. We we don't need any descriptions. Everyone on planet Earth has read that at some point. The thing that blew my mind with this is that Emmanuel Lubecki was the director of photography. Like some fucking unbelievable just films have been created in the past decade by this man or at least you know he was the cinematographer behind it and he he, he was the top for the cat in the hat i fucking it's the world's greatest easter egg in cinema um that being said when i went to put this on in the living room uh and kind of walked my dick was already out and massively hard quinn walked in and was like is this a cat in the hat are you gonna watch this without me and then got upset that oh I'm my god going to watch this without her so it was the exact opposite experience of her during crash yes exactly just the complete polar opposite complete inverse unbelievable stuff um the first like 60% of this film is just so unbelievably my humor. I fucking loved it. And until it got to the until they left the house for the first time and really had to make use of some 2003 children's movie CGI um and actually had to like rely on these children as actors it was mike myers is so fucking funny i i really enjoyed the asinine stupid bitch he had throughout the start of this film oh buddy we are going to disagree so hard i know i just like i understand watching this like this is a flaming flaming pile of garbage as far as just critiqued cinema like this is so 
just bottom of the barrel what you would expect from <laughs> what to follow a special award winner from the con film festival but i enjoyed the fucking hell out of it for about 45 minutes and then it gets really fucking bad man like that's the thing like, i never even really st- like, bad all right let's do some table setting for this movie because i feel like it does kind of deserve it because this is nuts so when this comes out in 2003 it Let's talk about where Mike Myers is in his career, because he is at the fucking top. Right. So in like uh, 1997 and actually in 1993, Wayne's World 2 comes out. Right. So up until like 91, he's on SNL. 92, Wayne's World. Huge hit. I'm going to pull up its... um box office yeah 183 million dollars in 1992 it's a huge hit then doesn't make a movie uh well actually he makes so i married an axe murderer which is not a good movie wayne's world 2 in 93 right another big movie him and garth uh or um what's his face reconnected not as big 48 million dollars but captures the success of the original um Dana Carvey, that's his fucking name. Couldn't think of it. Then he doesn't make a movie for four years. And then it comes out the first Austin Powers movie, International Man of Mystery, which becomes another big sensation, ends up breaking in $67 million domestic. But what's interesting about Austin Powers is um it's I think one of only two movies where the sequel earned or beat the box office of the original opening weekend. So while Austin Powers, the first one, $67 million might not be like a ton. Austin Powers two, the spy who shagged me did $312 million. Wow. It was colossal in 1999. Then he follows that up. With a bad movie called Mystery Alaska, but then in 2001 comes Shrek, which yeah. is massive, massive. Like we were kids when Shrek came out, so we don't appreciate how big it was. Four hundred and eighty-eight million dollars worldwide. It was colossal. I I don't even think you could call Mystery Alaska a. Mike Myers film. It, he's such a small part in it. He's in it. Is really all I was saying. Yeah. Fair enough. He's not even on the the like poster. It's for not a Mike Myers vehicle. I'll put it that way. Russell Crowe, Hank Azaria, Mary McCormick. Lolita so then, after Davis. that, in uh, 2002, so that's 01, 2002 is the third Austin Powers movie, which is 297 million dollars. So. In this run from 1992 to 2002, Austin Powers, Mike Myers is murdering. He is killing the box office. So that brings us to 2003, The Cat and the Hat, which is going to be a Mike Myers 
joint. It's it's his film to be uh, for, uh, you know, it's his vehicle. And to that end, if you consider all the movies that I just mentioned that had these big box office successes and what they essentially are is it's Mike Myers doing a character on screen and not seemingly to really have much of any rules. Sure, that there's definitely a script, but you're lying to yourself if, if you say that Mike Myers didn't do a lot of improv and was able to create the character that he wanted to and run with it uninterrupted. You know, the Wayne's World character is a character he developed for um, Saturday Night Live. You know, Shrek was his creation, essentially. I mean, the the characterization of the voice, I should say, for Shrek is, is his creation. Austin Powers is his creation. So I can completely get why this movie kind of exists. And I can kind of get the budget and pumping money into it. Because it's like, it's a lock, right? Mike Myers had like four straight movies grossing over $250 million. Like, it's such a lock. And what this movie ends up being is Mike Myers at his absolute worst, which is not funny. Like, every time the cat is shown on, like, in frame walking somewhere... Mike Myers does this like little jig you know, where like every part of him is kind of like bopping and his hands are jiggling and it's, it's just not funny. It It is. It's like when your aunt or uncle that you don't see very often is trying to make jokes, but like you got too old since the last time you saw them and their jokes are meant for like a six year old, but you're like 12 now and it's just not really funny. That's this movie. It's a man desperate, desperate to try to make something happen. It's not working. Having seen The Love Guru as a child, as a child who just, if you put a funny guy, that is Michael Myers at his worst. This is nowhere close to that. Dude, this This, is bad. This is Mike Myers, like, slightly hungover. The love guru is him on like meth. Just as far as like how far this is from rock bottom. Um you crouch. He's funny. Dude, he Mike is Myers, not funny. He is a Canadian icon, and I love Mike Myers. Did you enjoy the Austin Powers films? I'm a huge Mike Myers fan. I have seen both Wayne's Worlds. I've got to be a dozen times a piece. I've Mm. seen every Austin Powers movie. Mm. I've seen every Shrek movie. I loved Mike Myers during that run and throughout my entire childhood. This movie, dude, this movie's garbage. I will will fight to the death. I will fight to the death that the Mike Myers in the first 45 minutes of this film is quality Mike Myers. Dude, that is what happens after what happens after that, I will not dare pick up a weapon to defend him because it gets ugly. But the start of this film is gold. It's also kind of a crazy movie because there's not a plot to this movie. Right? Oh, like, not really. Not really. Yeah. Uh, like it, it's 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 a shtick. 
with loose plot points that is like at the end of the day wayne's world is for adults austin powers is for adults young adults but adults this is definitely meant for very young children and boy it's the plot of a just non-disney pixar dreamworks like children's movie like i think we've genuinely been uh what's the term for it like the quality that we've gotten out of those major major studios as far as children's animation in the past decade plus two decades even has been exceptional uh, i get that there was major investment in this but it it's a bad kids movie at its core yeah it's um rough <laughs> Uh, I I guess one of the one of the main Holy things shit, I want this to talk was about. DreamWorks. DreamWorks made this <laughs> loud and proud, brother. Loud and proud. Um. So this movie is directed by Bo Welch, and I think I mentioned this when we talked very briefly after you picked this at the end of the last episode. Bo Welch is a four-time Oscar nominee, but he's not much really of a director. He is a set decor guy. He he he's set deck. Uh, his Oscar nominations are all for set deck: Color Purple in '86, Little Princess in '96, The Birdcage '97, Men in Black '98. Like that's his wheelhouse, and to that end, you can really see it in this movie like this movie is a ton it is maximalist set dressing in a way that is though really not effective it's kind of a wild thing to watch because the movie takes place in such a specifically imagined world you know it's a specific kind of color palette all the Cars are meant to look Susian. All of the streets and the houses and everything. All of the are... cars and the fourth Thunderbird. <laughs> yeah, and, and but like ev- everything is designed in like this David Hockney color palette with Doctor Seuss curves and edges on it, but also like for no reason because then in the plot of the film. Outside of the, you know, the insanity that the cat brings with him in his magic box, the film is very much so just about like a single mom doing her best and, you know, a dick of a boss and kids being kids. They don't engage with it in a way that's actually interesting. And so it ends up being this bizarre maximalist world that doesn't actually affect anything. It's just garish to look at, you know? I I cannot disagree with that. It <laughs> it is it's almost the opposite of. No, nah, it's not the opposite. With Crash, there was at least like <laughs> yes, quality. Please compare film. this to Crash. <laughs> <laughs> with Crash, there was quality filmmaking at its core. If this was Crash, the kids would have fucked the cat. <laughs> if if <laughs> if Mike Myers was not playing the cat. And he was replaced by, 
literally anyone not named Jim Carrey, I would have fucking hated this from top to bottom. Absolutely no mercy of just how bad this could have gotten. This could have been truly, you know, deserving of like a Razzie for worst film of the decade. Oh, also, sorry. That reminds me of another point I was going to bring up, which is that Jim Carrey's How the Grinch Stole Christmas came out just a few years before this. That came out in the year 2000. And really, yeah. And that's another reason why they went to the vault of Dr. Seuss stuff, because that movie grossed three hundred and forty five million dollars. That was very well made. And it was a big budget. It was a hundred twenty three million dollar budget. Like they sunk a ton of money into it to get the costumes all right and to build this little world. But it paid off because Jim Carrey like this is essentially set up like how the Grinch stole Christmas did from a production. It's the entire it's the exact playbook. Yeah, you get a big character uh, comedian, drown them in costumes, build an entire illustrious looking set that befits the universe of the books, and basically let the 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 the, the lead go wild. And Jim Carrey's was wildly successful, and this movie falls so flat on its face because there also isn't like. The, the Grinch stole Christmas. The plot is here's this Grinch. He's such a Grinch that the term Grinch now means this guy. And he steals Christmas. And then this one little girl gets so sad. And he's like, fuck, I do have a heart. It's going to go three sizes. I'm going to put it all back. And now I love Christmas. The journey of this film, though, is that the kids are horrible. Um, Abigail Breslin's brother, Spencer Brent's Breslin. <laughs> who I feel like was everywhere at this point in time and is now nowhere. He had a great child career that blossomed into probably complete anonymity. And I think that's the best way to do it. It, it honestly He's, probably is. Yeah. Uh, he does act apparently from what I'm looking at very few roles here and there, but he's also probably done well enough from his child acting days. He doesn't need a lot and good for him. Um, Oh my God, he was the the boy kid in the happening. Holy shit! Um, oh shit! Anyway, Spencer Breslin is playing a a monster child, and um, Dakota Fanning is playing a girl who is too uptight, which is not a stereotype that should, I think, be looked upon overly negatively for like uh, what must be like a six year old girl. Um, but whatever. And the cat in the hat in the book is meant to be an agent of chaos, but one that is to show these kids that they're both on the wrong end of a spectrum. They're both going down a path that will lead them to be one, no fun and two, too chaotic. And through a means of forcing them to both be more spontaneous and more rule-based allows the kids to develop more healthy personality traits. But in this, you never get the sense that Mike Myers' cat is doing anything with intention until the end when he's like, see, that was the plan all along. You get the sense that Mike Myers is just fucking with these kids hard and has no control over any situation. And it makes the whole thing so tough to watch because these kids are immediately thrust into a chaos that they did not want. And it feels somehow mean. 
Yeah, it was. Um... I mean, talk about the fun stuff at the beginning of the movie, and not all this other sad stuff that makes. I want to know what really the fun dark stuff shit. Is. Tell me what the fun stuff. Uh, is. Mike Myers doing bits. It's not funny. Jokes. Yeah, they are funny. I give me a funny joke. I enjoyed them. Tell me a funny joke. Give me a laugh. Give me a chuckle. Give me a ha ha. Um, I very much enjoyed the cutaway to uh, the cooking show. Uh, I enjoyed that one. Um, boy, you're really testing the memory here, um, which on this show, you know, you can't because the time between watching and actually discussing is often the cooking vast. show bit made you laugh. Yeah, dude. That I was laughed. I sat awful. on my couch and chuckled along to the quality entertainment. That was oh, broken. my God. Corbin, that was awful. Josh, fuck off. Also, because you said it, and this is a complete airing of grievances, uh, Spencer Breslin was in The Happening. That is probably the worst movie ever made that I enjoyed. And you I have seen liked... multi- I have seen it multiple times. I've seen it at least four times. <laughs> I I remember so distinctly as a kid, my dad loved, loved M. Night Shyamalan. And I grew up on those movies. I think I've said it on this podcast where like I guessed the ending to the Sixth Sense like super early on and my dad got really mad. But like back in the early days of Netflix when they would still mail DVDs to your house and that was like the only way to do it, we got all of them. And I remember even being cool with Lady in the Water because it came out when I was like 12. So, you know, like your taste in movies is not very refined at that age. And it was sure it was an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Like I was on board for it. The Happening was the first movie of his I watched. Where I was like, this is bad. This is real, real bad. This is not good. I think I'm done. You're done with the M. Night? I think that's the last movie of his I've seen. I will be real with you. I get it. Oh, boy, do I get it. But at the same time, I don't care. I'm not afraid to show who I really am. No, that's not true. I watched Old. Never seen it. It's not great. Yeah, because after The Happening was Last Airbender, which I never watched. After Earth, never watched. The Visit, I never watched. Split, Glass, didn't watch them. Saw Old, didn't see Knock at the Cabin. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those. I hated The Happening so much. I never watched any of his previous movies a second time. Like I, I haven't seen any of those movies in years. Jeez, outside of The Sixth Sense, which I've only seen once, I don't know if I could name another M. Night movie. Unbreakable, which was a good movie. Signs, which is a good movie that I think the ending really fucks it hard. It's not oh. a good ending. I've seen pieces of that several times. I've never seen it start to finish. Joaquin Phoenix is very good in it. And mm-hmm. Mel Gibson is weirdly good in it. Um, and it is well made. I used to be the biggest Mel Gibson fan. I mean, understandable when we when, when we were kids. I mean, he had a bunch of really fucking good movies. Yeah. Like it pains me to say this, 
But The Passion of the Christ is a really good movie. I've never seen that. I've, I've never had any desire to. And Apocalypto. Apocalypto is so good. It's so, so good. Mm. Yeah, I, I hate saying it, but I mean, those two movies are genuinely good. Actually, you know, I haven't seen The Passion of the Christ since it came out. I'm now wondering if it's a lot worse than I remember. I remember really liking it when it came out, but I'm now realizing I'm looking at it. I forgot that movie came out in 2004, so I probably saw it when I was Holy like 11. Shit. Yeah, now I'm actually Damn, wondering that's if it's a, bad. That's a tough age to see Passion of the Christ. My parents... Having never seen Passion of the Christ... Did not care. Like a tough age. Well, yeah, so it's it very like visceral. It. It's very visceral. But you know what's funny? I was just talking to Cal about this today uh, because I was listening to a podcast where people were talking about Brokeback Mountain. Have you seen Brokeback Mountain? I haven't. Great, great movie. I will cry if I think about it for too long. It's so good. Um, And it came out, I want to say in like 06. And I remember distinctly my parents not letting me watch it, which was crazy because, again, I saw The Passion of the Christ when it came out. R-rated movie. I was 11. Um, and I couldn't see Brokeback Mountain when it came out, which is another R-rated movie that came out a year later than that. So I was probably like 12. And um, I could see The Passion of the Christ because it's about our boy Jesus. But of I course. couldn't see Brokeback Mountain because it was about sweet gay love. And I Absolutely. remember... It's literally parents... Jesus, the best man ever made, and Satan himself taking control of the minds and bodies of young cowboys. Heath Ledger uh, and Jake Gyllenhaal. Exactly. Um, and I remember like my parents getting it via the Netflix DVD delivery s- service. And they wouldn't let me watch it. And then one day they, I got home from school like well before they were home from work. And I I sneaked, watched it at like two in the afternoon one day um, and thought it was a comedy I because everyone was making fun of it. Do you remember being a kid and people making fun of Brokeback Mountain as like just like a gay cowboy movie? Josh, I don't remember being a kid. I don't much either, but I remember everyone joking around about Brokeback Mountain because it was so ridiculous that cowboys would fuck each other. Um, and I thought it was a comedy for that reason. Um, especially because, like, Heath Ledger, I didn't think of as a serious actor at that point in time. You know, like, A Knight's Tale and Ten Things I Hate About You. Like, those right. are not serious movies. Those are fun movies. And so when I watched it, and it's like a harrowing story of a life unfulfilled and, and a, a, a life spent repressed. I was like, Oh my God, this is so sad. It's not funny at all. Um, and then I loved it. And then I watched it again a few years later than that, but I don't think I've seen it in the last like decade. You want to cuddle up by the fire and watch Brooke back mountain under a blanket together. I love that movie. Also, a young Michelle Williams and a young Anne Hathaway, and you see Anne Hathaway's tits. Uh, sold. It was an interesting point in her career where she was trying to be taken seriously because up until that, if I recall correctly, she'd mostly been like a kind of like a kids movie person, um, and she wanted to move into like dramatic roles. I think this I could look this up, but I don't really care to. I think this was her first like 
big dramatic role. And so she was taking a big swing and wanted to be seen as like a woman. She was like, I'm going to take my fucking tits out. And then did and didn't get an Oscar nomination. And I remember being really mad about that because I thought that she should have gotten one. She had great tits. She's really good in the movie. So is Michelle Williams. I find Anne Hathaway incredibly attractive. So maybe I'll give that a watch. I didn't realize people didn't like her. Really? I just learned this the other day that people, you apparently it used to be a big thing that people didn't like Anne Hathaway because they thought she was too much of a theater kid and like too preppy in a kind of way, I guess. Um, Which I guess maybe you and I missed out on because I feel like we came up post um, Devil Wears Prada and Hathaway. Uh, it was, was like firmly like a, a, my a ultimate guilty pleasure movie. It's so good. Dude, Stanley Tucci, the, the Tooch, dude, the Tooch is loose in that movie. I uh, just that's that's a remarkable uh, one of the best characters in all of cinema history, Stanley Tucci in that movie, and Anne Hathaway, great, and yeah. um, what's her face is there? I can't think of her name. Uh, Emily Blunt. Oh my god, Emily Blunt's amazing in that movie. She's so good. I think that was her first movie. Really? I'm going to uh, that I will look up cuz um I remember it being like I remember looking at Emily Blunt's um IMDb page like a few months ago and and The Devil Wears Prada is way closer to the bottom of her listed credits than you'd expect cuz you would have thought that she was like already a human being. Um Devil Wears Prada is looks like her third part in a film with Irresistible coming out the same year and My Summer of Love being in 2004. So it's literally her third screen appearance. Wow. Yeah, she rocks in that movie. Meryl Streep is fine. Hot take. Um, I kind of want to watch The Devil's Wear Prada. The Devil Wears Prada now. Better movie than Cat in the Hat? Touche. Um, better movie than the Cat in the Hat. Yeah. Um, Alec Baldwin is in this movie. He's exceptionally bad in this movie. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to even think about like a, a, a critical insightful thing to say about his being in this and his performance and it's just it's just terrible like there's not even anything like overly interesting to say about it his character is bad too like it's it's bad on the page mm-hmm. and he's not doing a lot with it yeah there's um it's one of those things where he didn't need to be in this whatsoever like that could have been literally any straight guy ever and the effect it would have had on this film would have been unchanged because he's I, I don't believe um the kid's single mother's potential marriage was a plot point of the book do you remember it at all no of course yeah, not. Me, me neither um but i can't imagine he was there because that's what's kind of weird is that the He's so unnecessary. Like, he serves no purpose. And when you consider the 
plot of the book and the general idea of it, he's he's just not needed. Like the house and the deadline to make the house normal again already exists. The fact that their mother is also dating somebody that they don't like isn't interesting. And it right. raises questions that aren't really worth answering, which is like, how does he have a house and a car, but is also getting all his furniture repossessed? Where's the it doesn't money? Matter. Like, oh, it, it. None you don't need of, explanations. Like, how would the mother not notice it when they're literally neighbors? Like none of it makes sense. Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, but like, yeah, the scene where he is watching TV and his TV gets like repossessed while he's watching it is just <laughs> funny. <hate>. Yes, <laughs> that's the that's that's the first forty five minutes that you love so much, right? Goddamn right. What do you think about the fish? Fucking horrible. Both as a character and as a piece of technology created by artists. That sucked. That was so bad. Yeah, For the amount of money they put into this, the CGI is exceptionally bad. It's also crazy because the only way they could... Because they clearly couldn't figure out how to CGI the fish in to frame with the rest of the characters, which is why every shot of the fish is like a tight one And but the problem with it is that you're so zoomed in on the fish that it, yeah. it only looks more fake. Mm-hmm. And it, the, just the transition is jarring every time. It would have been more interesting if they put a fish costume on Mike Myers and had him play the fish too. <laughs> that frankly is the first thing I thought of, of like, man, the fish really should have been a dude in it. Like just the same thing of like a face on a fish body. I get that would still have been CGI, but boy, it would have fit so much better. The problem with thinking about ways to make this movie better is that you can't, you have to make a new movie. There could be minor adjustments that would definitely no. go a long way. Yep. You are wrong. Sure. This we have disagreed on so many films. I, I really want Cat in the Hat to be the one to break the camel's back and for us to reach fisticuffs. The only good part of this movie that is kind of affecting is Dakota Fanning. And when she sees the birthday party that she wasn't invited to and sees all the kids in her class at it, and she has this really nice moment and like this really, really solid line read where she's like trying to wrap her head around, um, oh, wait, all my friends are here. Why didn't I get invited? Or something like that is genuinely really touching in a movie that does not deserve it whatsoever. Uh, you can tell that even as a child, she was like an actual incredibly talented actress and uh spencer breslin was just like yeah his his sister's also that but he kind of tagged along because they had the one minivan it's funny because they're both kind of like done at this point it's really interesting uh spencer and abigail breslin like they both do act every now and then but by and large, both of them are kind of just like coasting. Frankly, very... yeah. I think a lot of it is I don't think I could 
look at either of them and not see their like eight-year-old versions of them. Like I just looked up what Abigail Breslin looks like right now, and it's her with a significant other in a you know tight dress. And it's like, oh, that's wrong. That's like a 12-year-old child, but it's not. She's I assume older than I am. Yeah. It's her birthday in three days. Happy birthday, Abigail Breslin. Your sensors a guy. Yeah, yeah, she's uh she's her own lady now. Abigail Breslin. Yep. Little Miss Sunshine was awesome. I am older than her. That's weird. I think of her as older than me. Fair. Yeah, I don't know why. Uh but yeah, Abigail Breslin, full adult now. Um so is her brother, I assume. Haven't seen either of them in a while. Um, this movie's really bad. This movie's really bad. By the time the box comes out, it's like, it's so startling because you're like, oh my God, this isn't the movie yet. <laughs> and then the box comes out and you're like, oh, it, this is the movie now. That mm-hmm. That's tough. Um. Yeah. We don't need to keep talking about this film. Okay, then we're going to stop. Um, yeah. Final ratings and reviews, Corbin. This isn't your movie. You start. Um, boy, it. If you just talk first forty-five minutes, it's a five. It really is. Um, but yeah. as a whole, it's um a two. I understand that's a generous score, but uh, again, I. I think this is still quality Mike Myers. And at the end of the day, there are much worse shows to watch with a young child. Um, yeah, it's a two. No, I will never. I will. This. I will show my kid this one day. You will immediately get taken into child protective services. And I know that because I will call them. <laughs> Josh, today's the day they get to see the cat in the hat. Oh, knew this day was coming. Uh, They'll be there soon. Um, this is this is a zero point five. <laughs> this is a movie that should have resulted in the public execution of everyone involved. It's a bad movie. It's such a bad movie, and it's a bad movie that was set up in every single way to be a success, and is still a bad movie, which is scathing. Not just the buildup to Mike Myers' career that we mentioned or the very recent examples of other success of Dr. Seuss properties that we had mentioned. But as I think I had mentioned last time we recorded, this film was directed by a four-time Oscar winner in the wrong category for a director, but still, and was written by Alec Berg and David Mendel, who are two of the greatest um, TV writers of their generation. Um, Alec Berg, who was a writer on... Um, and a producer for uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Barry, Silicon Valley, Seinfeld, and uh, David Mandel, who was a writer and producer for Curb Your Enthusiasm, Seinfeld, Veep, Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons. Like, it's insane that a movie with so much going on and an Oscar-winning cinematographer... (laughs) 
sucks this hard. It's nuts. Ah, film studios. They really know how to kill things that we love. And how. Uh, all right, Corwin. Looking at uh at, at the looking down the line. Feed me what you want for next week's pick. Nope. You're picking the movie nope, I assume. I am picking the movie nope. Ah, <sighs> okay. Oh boy, what are I love the responses that you give when I pick movies. I have seen Nope. I don't have the highest opinion of it. I watched it kind of recently, but maybe I'll rewatch it to get a fresh perspective on it. But um, it's a movie. Definitely a movie. Uh, I'm going to go with a movie that is a, a really weird blind spot in my movie watching. Um, it really feels like I should have seen this and I at some point and never have. Uh, 2006's Children of Men. Interesting. You've never seen Children of Men? I've never seen Children of Men. Oh, I'm not looking forward to this conversation. I'm looking forward to those men having children. That Wow, you figured out the plot of the movie. And for them to become the children of men. Yeah, good good on you. I can only assume this is the sequel to Brokeback Mountain. (laughs) Yeah, wow, you are just fucking locked in today. I just can't quit you. (laughs) (laughs) This bit. Um, Yeah. Corwin, anything else before we get out of here? No. All right. Well, if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you can follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at Juice in the Big Screen at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye. Bye.